Amen. All right, we appreciate you uh, being here this morning at the Antioch campus of Blue Valley Baptist Church, and I appreciate your prayers this past week. Um, I flew to Lima, Peru Monday, came back uh, Friday, uh, all day <laughs> uh, Friday, and um, was down there as a, as a guest of the ministry Compassion International. I shared that with you last week, and they wanted us, pastors from this area, to just kind of learn a little bit about their ministry, and I did. It was very enjoyable. Got a lot of food for thought. I'm not kind of ready to talk about what that might someday mean for Blue Valley Baptist Church or if it'll ever really mean anything. I've got to kind of debrief that internally and also with the, the elders. But I can say this. If you sponsor a child through Compassion International, that money is very well spent. Um, I, I guess I've always believed that Compassion children are primarily just people we feed, but it's so much more than that. They receive over 400 hours of Christian training and discipleship a year at their host sites, and it's really an all-inclusive ministry to children. Um, and so if you're given that $38 a month, that is money well spent. I went to Oklahoma Baptist University uh, for my bachelor's degree, and they gave me a good education, taught me how to learn. That's kind of the legacy of of OBU in my life. And one of the ways they taught me how to learn was drop me in my junior year in a class called Natural Science. Now, the first semester, I, I, I kind of enjoyed. We got to spend time thinking about the stars and the planets and everything out in space. And as somebody who was born in the 60s, 60s and has some of his earliest memories being the Apollo missions, I really enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun. But when we got to the second semester, it was biology, and that really was, let's just say that wasn't my thing, all right? And uh, really kind of the highlight of that entire semester was a study of the inner workings of piglets, um, which is, by the way, a knowledge I have found no use for since. <laughs> but we had to study the inner workings of these little piglets, and so we cut them up. That didn't bother me. I... I'm a hunter and a fisher, and I've cut things open a lot. That was not what bothered me. What bothered me was learning about what I was looking at. And there was an expectation that I learn. And so the time came where the test on the piglet section was given, and you walked into this room, this really kind of macabre scene where you had all these piglets splayed open, open and strings coming out of the piglets attached to pins that had number flags on them, and you were given a piece of paper by the professor, and there were questions corresponding to the number. And the, the, first, num the first question usually was simple-ish. What organ are you looking at? And I could more or less get that. But then there would be five questions after that saying, trace the flow of blood back to the heart, naming the veins and the arteries. And from what I gathered, my professor did not appreciate the answer a miracle occurs. Because um, uh, I really didn't do so well uh, on that test. Thankfully, that was a curve test, and uh, everybody else did poorly as well. And because everybody else did poorly, I looked average, and that's all I was shooting for at that stage uh, of, of the game. I didn't like taking pigs apart and learning how they worked. But one of the things I do enjoy doing is taking biblical passages apart, doctrines, teachings of the church apart, 
and seeing how they work. And that's what we're going to do today. If you would please find Genesis chapter 15. Now, folks, if we were to stand right now and read this together, these six verses would be verses that you would say, what on earth does that have to do with me? You would, you would read them on their own and think that I am about to completely waste your time. But here's what we need to know about this text before we read it. The foundational truth of biblical Christianity is that we are saved by grace through faith. And the New Testament writers support their argument for that teaching by pointing to a verse in what I'm about to read to you. So even though you may pay no attention to this passage of Scripture on your own, this is indeed one of the most important passages of Scripture in all of God's Word. So we're going to take it apart, and in taking it apart, we're going to figure out today how faith really works. So if you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, and don't worry about that, we'll talk about what those things were in just a minute. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Abram, more popularly known later in his life as Abraham. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, You've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So those six verses, taken apart, can show us how faith works, the inner workings of faith. And it does... So by way of illustration and then a particular point that is made. And here is the first thing we're going to see this morning about how faith works. God's presence awakens faith. God's presence awakens faith. All right. So after these things, the after these things that are being referenced there come from Genesis chapter 14. Here's what we learn in Genesis chapter 14. We learn that Abram's family member, Lot, has been swept up in war. This happens all around the world every day. People living their own lives innocently are swept up in the brokers of power seeking more power by taking it from someone else. Lot, just minding his own business, swept up in war. A war that was caused by a confederation of kings who were merely seeking to gain the wealth of others and keep it as their own. Well, Abram hears about this, hears that his family member Lot has been taken captive, 
and he, he, he can't simply set by. He, he has to do something about it. And so what he does is he conscripts an army from his own household of servants, 300 men trained for war, and he goes after them. Now, we are meant to read that 300 as being a low number. Five kings, a confederation of five kings, kings of cities, and what they had available to them had gone on this rampage, and Abram is coming at them with 300 household servants. So the odds are against Abram, and yet because God is with Abram, he, he, he sacks these five kings and their armies and all that they had been able to gain. And in a finder's keeper's world, which is what the world was in which Abram lived, all of the wealth that he got from them that they had taken from others was now his. So this served to make Abram fabulously wealthy. And then he does something that's extraordinary. On his way back, he encounters one that is known as the King of Salem, the priest of the Most High God. Now, we're going to learn more about the King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, later on in this series. But for right now, it's important to understand that he encountered this man who was worshiping the same God that he was worshiping. And he gives this man a tithe, 10% of all that he has, had just taken. And then he goes to Sodom, which is where his family member Lot was from, and he gives all that had been taken from that city back to Sodom. And both, both actions here, the tithe and the giving back, are acts of worship. The tithe is an act of worship because obviously as a priest of the Most High God, he was, uh, he was feeling compelled to give to him as a representation, as an offering back to God. And giving it back to Sodom was an act of worship because Abram had this commitment. It shows up throughout his life where he doesn't want to just take something from someone because he doesn't want anyone to be able to say, I have made Abram rich. And so by giving it back to, to Sodom, he is holding on to that value. I want people when they look at me and see any wealth that I have, anything that I have to understand that God has given it to me. So th these are extraordinarily faithful acts. I mean, Abram's a, a religious rock star in Genesis 14. But here's what I've discovered. I've discovered a lot takes place in the white space of Scripture. And what takes place between the end of chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15 is that Abram begins to think about everything that he's just done, and he has an uh-oh moment because he recognizes I just shamed and humiliated five power brokers in the region. I, I took from them what they had fought to win on their own. I bet they have long memories. And he began to fear. That's the reason I like Abram. He, he left his own devices, can think his way out over his skis and get scared. I can identify with that. So he... He has fear. And then this fear leads him to just kind of question the whole shooting match with God. Look, God, I have been gone from my homeland for years now, probably decades at this point, on the promise that you're going to give me a kid. Make my name great. Hadn't happened yet. I don't know what I'm doing here. I mean, I don't know why I put myself through all of this. I have received nothing from you, which is not true. But fear makes you think you've, you've received nothing 
from God. And so, in the face of these fear and doubt, something extraordinary happens. God shows up. Not because Abram was seeking God, he was just ticked at God. But God shows up, comes to Abram in a vision, and he says, there's no need to fear, Abram. I'll be your shield. And he says to Abram, there's no need to despair or doubt. I will bless you. Now, this is a pattern that Abram had had with God for the entire time that he had been associated with God. God had come to Abram, had come to him, had just shown up in his life all these years ago in his homeland. And Joshua in the Old Testament tells us that Abram had done nothing to deserve God showing up tells us he wasn't actually even seeking that God. Abram, according to Joshua, was an idol worshiper, a pagan. He was finding answers and trying to seek solace in all these other gods. And then God just moves all that out of the way and says, nope, I'm the one true God. You've not known me. You've not met me. He shows up. Abram wasn't looking, but God found him. And as a result of this, of God showing up, Abram's faith is awakened. He he is able to acknowledge and see the presence of God in his life. The the, The presence of God is what awakens faith. When we come to a point, when we realize that there is a God, and it's the God of the Bible our faith begins to be ignited. But faith has to be more than just ignited. The spark is not going to last on its own. It has to be fanned into a full-blown flame. And so the next thing that we see about how faith works is that while God's presence awakens faith, God's promise focuses Abram receives a promise again from God in these verses that he will receive from him what he cannot achieve without him. He will receive from God what he cannot achieve without God. Now, folks, when when God shows up, because we have our halos screwed on and everybody's happy in the Bible, we think, uh, we don't really see this, but when God shows up, Abram lets God have it. You see, in Genesis 12, when Abram is called away by God to go to the land that he will show him and that he will make him there a great nation, the natural conclusion that Abram would have drawn, the natural conclusion that the reader would have drawn, would be, this guy's going to have a whole litter of kids. Now, it would have been a miracle then. I mean, they were in their 70s. It would have been a miracle then. The natural conclusion was all these kids are going to show up. But now it had been literally decades, and Abram is setting in what, from his perspective, is an unsafe, God-forsaken country and says, God, you haven't come through. You haven't come through for me in this. And it goes to the heart of his frustration that he actually voices his complaint two different ways. Look at verse 2. O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, which all people uh, who study this passage of Scripture think that Abram is referencing one of his 
trusted household servants, a slave. A slave's going to have everything I have at this point. And then he says, and God, in case you missed it, behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household shall be my heir. In case you missed it, you have not come through for me. And then God tells Abram, he and Sarai will conceive. In fact, it's so strong in how he words it that he doesn't even mention Eliezer's name. Look, he says, this man, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So he goes back to the original promise and says, nothing has changed. Then he doubles down on it and he says, go outside and just look at the stars. He's done this before with Abram, by the way. Just go outside and look at the stars. And if you can count them, you'll be in the ballpark of how numerous your descendants will be. Now, a few verses earlier, Abram had acknowledged that God was the possessor of everything. And that's what he says when he is giving back a tithe to the king of Salem. God owns all this stuff anyway. So he, he owns everything. He acknowledged that God in general was a God who who had and, and enjoyed everything. But now he is being called to actively trust that God to receive something from him that he could not achieve without him, an heir. You say, okay, I don't know if I still get why this means anything to me. Well, let me try to illustrate it for you with an example from my own life, and I think a lot of people will be able to identify with this. I grew up in a home where my plans on Sunday morning were not an option. I mean, we got up and we went to church. That is what we did. And because of the era in which I grew up, we rested for a little bit on Sunday afternoon, and then we went back for a full-blown church experience on Sunday night. I remember one time that I really wanted to stay home and watch the $6 million man beat up Bigfoot at 6 o'clock on ABC, Channel 8 in Tulsa. And my mom says, you need to love Jesus more than the $6 million man. <sighs> so we went to church. I, I grew up, it wasn't an option. My, my entire life growing up, I was aware of the presence of God. I, I can't remember a time where I even questioned the presence of God. But as I grew, that general awareness of God, which had awakened faith in me, began to focus that faith and say, just knowing me and that I'm here is not enough. You need to, in order to be in relationship with me, trust me, actively trust me, to receive from me what you cannot achieve without me. And that thing that I was to actively trust him for that I could not achieve on my own was my salvation. And so coming to, to Christ, understanding that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, focused my faith from an idea that God's here and he's present with me to putting my eyes firmly on the gift that he wants to give me of salvation. And at that point, I have a choice to make. Will I receive from God 
what I cannot achieve without God? Abram had a similar choice. Will he actively trust God to receive from him an heir, that which he cannot achieve without him? And the answer that he gives is yes. And then in the verse, in the verse that is used by New Testament writers to build the argument that we are saved by grace through faith, we see this last thing about how faith works. We see God's provision of his gift in Abram's case and heir, God's provision, when accepted, prompts God to acknowledge faith, to acknowledge that it exists in our lives. Look at verse 6. This is the money verse. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. Believed what? Believed that God would be true to what he said and that he would therefore actively trust God actively trust God to receive from him what he could not achieve without them. And then it says God's response was that he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, what is that? What does that mean? It means basically to be in right relationship with God. And he said, on the evidence of what I see, Abram, and your willingness to trust me, to receive from me what you cannot achieve without me, I deem you, I proclaim you, to be in right relationship with me. He had reached a point where he understood he could not manipulate life circumstances. Now, he's going to have to continue to learn this lesson, but he was brought back to a point where he, where he recognized he could not manipulate life circumstances to be able to get this here. He was just going to have to trust God in it. And when God sees that, he acknowledges it as evidence that he is right with him. God saw this belief, this faith in him, and counted it to him as righteousness. Now, this is the point made by Paul in Romans chapter 4. Paul says that Abram, solely on the basis of his trust in God, his active trust in God, was brought into right relationship with God. He had not come into right relationship with God on the basis of keeping the Old Testament law because if you're familiar at all with the timeline of the Old Testament, there's no such thing as the Old Testament law here. If you'd gone to Abram and said, hey, what's your favorite Ten Commandments? He would say, man, I don't know what you're talking about. That's several hundred years in the future. Paul says he comes to faith in God into a right relationship with God on the basis of this active trust in God to receive from him what he cannot achieve without him. So it's not religion that made Abraham right with God. It's not morality that made Abraham right with God. What made Abraham right with God was his faith in God. Trust. Faith in God is the only thing that can bring us into right relationship with Him. If we do not place our faith in Him and abandon any thought in our own lives that we can accomplish something that makes us worthy of God so we're able to, to achieve some of it on our own, if we can't reach that point of active trust in Him, 
for receiving from him what we cannot achieve without him, then we can never be right with God. So God works in us today in the same way he worked with Abram. And I want to show you that by calling your attention to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament. So let's, let's leave Genesis 15, and as you leave Genesis 15, wave bye-bye to it forever in this series because we're not coming back. Maybe you're disappointed. You really will have to get over it. We are not coming back to Genesis, all right? But we are going to now look at a passage of Scripture in the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. So find Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and let me show you how faith in the New Testament works the same way that faith in the Old Testament worked. All right? Ephesians 2, look at verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. All three things that we have talked about this morning, about how faith works, are present in those two verses. You see, just like he did with Abram, God initiates our faith by making himself known. Paul makes it abundantly clear here that the experience of salvation doesn't start in human accomplishment. That, that it doesn't start in a human endeavor. But instead, salvation, faith in God, begins with the mercy and love of God. We, Paul says, here and in numerous places, were dead in our sin. And a dead person has nothing to contribute to the world around them. They cannot acknowledge anything going on around them. Paul says that is the appropriate picture of how we are disconnected from God in our sin. Because we are dead in our sins, if God did not make himself known to us through, through his rich mercy and his abundant love, we could not know God. God's presence awakens faith. And just like he did with Abram, God focuses our awakening faith by giving us the promise of something from him that we could not achieve without him. And the promise, ultimately, is eternal life through Christ alone. When God begins to stir our hearts awake from our spiritual deadness, he focuses our attention on Jesus and the promise of forgiveness and new life that he alone can offer. And at that point, we have a decision to make. Am I going to be willing to trust in God and his provision of Jesus Christ alone for my salvation? Or am I going to try to make it on my own? We have a choice to make. And when we make that choice to say, yes, I'm going to actively trust God to receive from him what I cannot achieve without him by giving myself to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then God will acknowledge the presence of faith and redeem us and make us his own. He, he initiates faith by coming to us and awakening our, our dead hearts with his presence. He focuses our faith by saying, you can receive through Jesus something from me that you cannot achieve on your own. And when we actively trust in Jesus, he gives us the gift of eternal life and we are right with him. Now, there are two big roadblocks to this in people's hearts. 
Roadblock number one is pride. I just don't want to believe, Derek, that I have nothing to offer God. I mean, I'm, I'm not a bad person. And you know what? I'll give you that. I mean, in general, I, I can't interview each one of you right now, but I'll give you that. You're, you're not bad people. I mean, you're not in jail. Um, so at the very least, you've not been caught. So <laughs> we'll go there. There are a lot, of, a lot of worse people in the world than the people I'm looking at right here. And you just don't want to acknowledge that you're so corrupt, and that's the biblical teaching, that you don't somehow merit salvation. Pride gets in the way. The other thing gets in the way is um, a, a spiritual condition called knuckleheaditis. And it says, you mean all I have to do is trust Jesus, say some words? Well, sign me up for that right now, and I'll just live how I want to, because God's made a promise to me, and I can just live how I want to. The reason that's a stumbling block is because if that's your conclusion, you haven't gotten faith. Because at the moment that you recognize that you have received from God something you can't achieve without Him, because God is rich in mercy and abundant in love, then the response of anybody who really knows God is going to be, what can I give him for the rest of my life to show how much I appreciate him? Those are the two stumbling blocks to this. So my prayer for all of us here today is that we'll think through what all of this means for us. What does it mean? What does it mean to say I have faith in Jesus? And that will come to a point where we recognize ultimately it means trusting in Jesus for everything. To receive through him what we cannot achieve without him. Being right with God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. I want you to just kind of still yourself before God right now. No one's inside your head but the Lord. And I want you to consider your faith journey. Your journey with God. And I, and I want you to ask yourself, have you come to a point of absolute surrender? where you have been willing to say, I can't, I can't achieve what I need, which is being right with you on my own. But I need to just simply receive it. Trust, actively trust that only Jesus can make me right with you. Ask yourself, has there been that moment? Has there come that moment? And then the next question would be, is if there has been that moment, since that moment, has your life been characterized by obedience? I'm not saying perfection. That's something entirely different. I'm saying, has your life been characterized by obedience? Has your life, since, since coming to awareness that 
God offers you in Christ Jesus what you cannot achieve without God's mercy, love, and grace, being right with Him, salvation. Since coming to that awareness, has your life been marked by attempting your very best to live a life that pleases Him and honors Him? Now, having thought about that, I want you to to understand that if the answer to both of those questions are no, or one of those questions is no, then you don't have saving faith. You are not right with God. Because if you've never been able to come to the point where you would say, I have nothing to offer and I just have to receive from God what I cannot achieve on my own, then you're still holding out hope that somehow you can save yourself. And you can't be saved if you still think you can save yourself. And if you think, you know, I, I can live how I want to, and obedience has not characterized your life, then you've not come to saving faith because you haven't really understood what, it, what you've been given in Christ Jesus. And so if the answer to both questions is no, then, then have a Genesis 15, 6 moment right now where you finally believe that you must receive from God what you cannot achieve without Him. And that is a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ our Lord.